Chris came after the 11 o'clock service last Sunday and he came to the front and, and uh, he said, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I just know that I'm ready for God to do something in my life. I'm struggling with, uh, I'm a recovering addict and, and I, I need God to, uh, in my life. And I said, well, let's pray together. And Reuben and I prayed with him as he trusted Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he said, okay, what's next? And I said, well, the next thing you need to do is get baptized. And uh, I said, you want to do it next Sunday? He said, I won't be here next Sunday because I, I had to go back to California. And I said, okay, then we can make it happen Tuesday. And so uh, we went Tuesday to the Oakley's pool and, and, and uh, he's beginning his new life. We're encouraging him and discipling him from a distance. And, uh, and as he was trying to comprehend the love, why there's guys that, that were with him at, around the pool and Guys, I met with him Wednesday night to encourage him in his new walk, to disciple him. He was wondering, why, why do you guys care? Why do you guys do all this? How is it that God could, could love me? I've made so many wrong choices in my life, and, and now, uh, you, you know, this, this is happening. I don't understand. And I said, it's called grace. It's called grace. It is God's grace at work, and that's what we've been singing about and that's what we're going to talk about today. Our message is called Experiencing Grace. We're continuing with the stories from the life of David. We followed David since he was a little boy at his father's house, a little shepherd boy. We followed him through his triumph over Goliath, uh, his service at the temple as a therapeutic musician for Saul, uh, his, his military uh, conquest and victories, uh, his fleeing from the palace because Saul wanted to kill him. And then ultimately last Sunday, we talked about David's arrival to the throne as king. And so now we come to a story that is uh, part of uh, his being a ruler and a king in Israel. Very interesting story. And it is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. I'd like to invite you to go there with me if you have a Bible, a device with you, or you can follow on the screen as I read. We're going to read the entire chapter and, and just try to follow this story. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, 
I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. I wish he had an easier name. Mitch would have done. Mephibosheth, that's the story. You know, uh, as candidates for the 2020 presidential race campaign, one of the things they talk about is what, are, what is the first thing that they would do when they, when they get in office? And, and, and talking about that uh, talks about what's important to them, what's a priority in their platform. And, uh, and when we look at King, uh, King David as he arrived at the throne, the very first thing that he did was to bring the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. The ark of the Lord is a symbol of God's presence and David was a worshiper and he thought it ought to be in Jerusalem uh, where, where the palace was, where people, where there would be a center of, of not just government, but a center of worship. And so when the ark of the Lord, you, you read about this in 2 Samuel chapter seven, when the ark of the Lord arrived in Jerusalem, David was dancing out of joy, he was worshiping. His wife was so embarrassed of how undignified he worshiped. But David said, I don't care, I'm not doing it for you, I'm doing it for God. And then, uh, that, that's, that's the first thing that David did in his, in his reign. And then God gave David the ability to conquer and defeat all of the enemies that surrounded them. And, and Israel enjoyed a period of peace. So those were the first two things that David did when he arrived at the throne, he introduced worship as being a central part of life in Jerusalem, and then he brought peace to the kingdom. And now once those two things were in place, you read about that, 2 Samuel 7, 8, 9, uh, actually uh, 6, 7, and 8, and we come to 2 Samuel 9, and now David takes time to do something uh, very interesting. He is showing kindness to one of King Saul's descendants. Uh, this is an interesting thing. It, it, it sort of goes against the grain. But we see here that David had experienced God's grace in such an abundant way that he wanted to extend that grace beyond himself. Let's see what we can learn about David's experience of grace to apply to our lives. We look at this story, if you're following the notes in your bulletin, the first thing that we see is that grace runs after. We notice that David takes the initiative for looking for, descend, for a descendant of Saul. See, the expected thing, the expected thing would be that a king who, who is establishing a new dynasty would look for any descendants of the former dynasty and kill them. Because if you're gonna establish a new dynasty, you don't want anybody who can lay claim to the throne around. 
But that's not why David is looking for a descendant of Saul. He's not looking to kill someone. He is looking to show kindness to a descendant of Saul. David is pursuing Saul's descendants to to show them kindness. And he says that it is for the sake of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend. And, And when Saul sought to kill David, Jonathan warned David and helped him escape. In fact, he he really, in effect, saved his life. And and David was so thankful for, for the kindness that he had known in his friendship with Jonathan that he said, I I want to do something about that. I want to extend that kindness beyond myself. And that's the nature of grace. That's the nature of God's love. God runs after us. God pursues us. God takes the initiative in looking for us before we were even looking for him. See, God chose David not because of what David had done, but God chose David because he chose to choose him. That's that's it. Not because of his abilities, his skill, his looks, his size, his education, his resume. He chose David because he chose to chose him. That's how God is. He is pursuing David because of grace, and, and, and David is thankful for it. God reminds David of, of this grace that he has shown to him in chapter seven. If you wanna go back with me uh, a couple of chapters, chapter seven, beginning with verse eight, God says to David, now then, uh, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed your ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies The the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and your rest with your ancestors, I will raise your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish a kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow. God says, David, I took you when you were a little shepherd boy and I made you a king. And I established your throne as the greatest kingdom and I've given you peace and victory. And not only that, but I'm gonna establish your kingdom forever. Even when you die, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will continue to be blessed. In fact, this is a messianic prophecy. A kingdom that endures forever points to the Messiah, points to Jesus. And David was the recipient of of God's grace that that had pursued him. David didn't apply for the job. David wasn't campaigning to be king. God chose to give it to David. 
Israel did not always choose God, but God chose Israel. It was grace that pursued him and, and David recognizes him. It is nice when someone notices us even before they know us, right? I mean, I'm gonna tell you a story because my wife is out of town and, and I feel the freedom to tell it when she's not here. And uh, some of you may say, well, yeah, but they record the, the sermon and they put it on the website. Let me tell you, I feel pretty safe. My wife never watches my videos online. She, you know, she doesn't. Uh, but uh, it goes back several decades when we were just out of high school. We'd graduated from high school. This is how our relationship started. Uh, we, we lived in different towns and we went to Camp Sefer and we were leaders at camp and uh, a lot of the other leaders were married. There were a couple of single people. And so when I got there, I right away noticed this beautiful girl. And I said, wow, what a girl. And, uh, and I said, but you know what? I reminded him, I said, no, Julio, Julio, wait. You didn't come to camp to look for girls. You came to look for Jesus. And so, um, so I said, yeah, let's focus here. Let's focus. I'm here for Jesus. And so they asked me uh, if I would organize uh, some volleyball tournaments. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And so uh, I, I asked, I need, you know, I need uh, a group of volunteers that will help me carry this out. And, and so uh, I said, if you want to help me, meet me at the back of the room after this meeting. And so uh, people came to volunteer. And among the people that came, there was this beautiful girl right there. And I said, God, you're so good. <laughs> I look for you and you bless me. And then, uh, and, and then I gave them assignments and, uh, and, and, uh, and I said, look, look, we're gonna have three or four volleyball courts and, and everybody's gonna be doing, you know, calling the line or being referee or whatever, keeping score. And, uh, and, and I gave them assignments. And so when the tournaments were going on the following day, I was going around the volleyball courts to check what was going on. And I got to one volleyball court and I was checking what was going on and I noticed that Monica was there standing right beside me. And I said, oh, hi. And I said, man, this is good. And so we talked for a little bit and then I left and I went to check the next volleyball court and, and see what was going on over there. And, and after checking it out in a few minutes, I turned around and, and there was Monica standing right beside me again. <laughs> and I said, well, this, it's a coincidence, I'm sure. And uh, so we talked again, you know, we took advantage of, of the opportunity of being together. And, and so then I moved on and went to the next volleyball court to see what was going on there. And after a few minutes of being there, I turned around and she was there. And I said, okay, this is not a coincidence. <laughs> she doesn't know who I am, but apparently she's interested at least in having conversation. And, and, and that's how our relationship started. And, and then, you know, the rest is history. But it's nice when someone notices you, when somebody uh, cares about you, when somebody doesn't even know you, but, but they're interested in you, but that doesn't even compare to the way that God has noticed us, has taken initiative to, to care for us, has been pursuing us even before we thought about him. That's grace. God didn't choose us because of who we are or because of what we've done. He chooses us because of grace. It is his will and pleasure. Listen, it is God's will and pleasure to pursue you, to go after you. That's what grace is about. Secondly, we see here that grace redeems. When David finds Mephibosheth, things are not looking good for Mephibosheth. I mean, 
He's the only grandson of Saul that is alive. He doesn't have parents. He doesn't have grandparents. He doesn't have siblings. He doesn't have uncles, aunts. He, he's desolate. He's by himself. And he is aware that at any moment, the king may want to kill him. Any other king would want to kill him. His life is always at risk. He lives in fear. And to add insult to injury, he is lame in both feet. He's not able to work. He's not able to fend for himself. His future, at best, is uncertain. He couldn't have picked himself up by his own bootstraps. He couldn't even stand up. He was in the kind of condition where you don't need a pep talk. What you need is a push upward. You don't need a reprimand, you need a rescue. And that's exactly what David did for him. He rescued him. He removed the fear and uncertainty from his life. He called him into his court. And, and as Mephibosheth might have been afraid, man, he's gonna kill me right here and now. Uh, David says, don't be afraid. I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to bestow favor on you. I'm gonna be good to you. Now, you, don't remember, you remember that David suffered much under Saul. I don't know, if you had been persecuted by someone like Saul, if your life had been made as difficult as Saul made David's life, what would you have done for Saul's grandson? David suffered under Mephibosheth's grandfather, but instead of taking revenge, he lifts him up. That's grace. Grace rescues. Grace takes us from a place where there was no hope and gives us hope. A guy by the name of Cornelius Anderson, he goes by Mike, around the year uh, 2000 or so, he, uh, uh, he assaulted a Burger King employee with a gun. And he was arrested and was taken to jail and he was sentenced to serve for 13 years. And uh, he, he uh, posted bond and, uh, and went home and they told him, we will let you know when it's time to serve your sentence and where to show up, where to report. And he said, okay. And he never, he never heard back from them and when to show up and time went by, days went by, weeks went by, and he never got a, a notice from, from them about serving his time. And so uh, uh, apparently there was a clerical error and, uh, and so he said, well, I'm just going to, uh, instead of going back to a life of crime, it was the only time he had done something stupid like that. And he said, instead of doing something like that again, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do right. And, and so he got a trade as a carpenter and he started a construction company. He wasn't hiding. He was just waiting. He got married. He, uh, he met Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Uh, he started going to church. He started serving at his church. He, he coached a little football team where his children that were born later uh, were, were in and, and he was serving. And then at the end of the 13 year sentence that he was supposed to serve but hadn't served, the people in jail thought that he was in jail. And so they said, we need to make arrangements to release him. And then they figure out he wasn't there. So they sent a SWAT team to his house to arrest him. And they arrested him and took him to jail and, and he served 10 months. And after 10 months, he was called into court and, and the judge looked at his case and, uh, and, uh, and, he, and he looked at his life and how in those almost 13 years that he had been freed, how his life had been transformed by the power of God. And the judge said, okay, you've served 10 months and that constitutes your sentence. You can go, you can be free. And he gives his testimony 
on NBC's Today show, uh, when the day after he was released from jail, listen to it. You have turned your life around, but there was a clerical error. You didn't turn yourself in. When you look at that now, in the circumstances now, what do you think you should have done? What would you tell your kids to do? What have you learned from this whole experience? I just learned God is good. He's awesome. He's got us. He's got us through this. His hand was in this the whole time. And you know, it sounds weird, but if I had to do it all over again. I don't know if I'd do anything different because he just showed me so much of what's going on and, and just the lives that he's, he's touching. It's not, it's not about us. It's not about me. He, he's doing something for other people out there. The, the stories of people telling me that it was encouraging to them. And, you know, the, I got letters from strangers all over the U.S. that I don't even know. You know, and people saying that they, I've had people tell me that they gave up. You know, they weren't praying anymore, listening to God. And something told them that they need to pray and they need to help. And just, you know, God working in their life is awesome. Connor, this was a shock to you the moment the authorities finally came 13 years later and took him away. You didn't know about this. Were there moments in these long months where your faith was shaken or you had doubts about who this man was? No, because you have to know the type of person he is to know that he likes to take on a lot on himself. And he didn't want to put that burden on me. So. One of the things I think is really extraordinary about this case is that the victim in the initial crime, which you have acknowledged, has come out and advocated for your release, saying this man has lived a good life, he has changed, and he deserves to be free. What does that mean to you? That's awesome. I mean, that's, that in itself is, is enough for me. It, it, it lets you know his character, his, his integrity as a man, and, and that people, people can get, you know, I don't know if he's gotten over it, but he can get, get to the point where he can say, hey, that man messed up, he was young, but look at him now. And to hear it from him, that, just, that should just let everybody know there that that's a testimony in itself. That's grace. You know, we, most of us believe that when you do the crime, you should do the time. But, but when there's a clerical error that God somehow in his grace allowed to happen, and during that time that he was not in jail, he meets Jesus and his life gets turned around in such a way that even a judge recognizes the changing his life, and even the victim of the crime says, yeah, that life has changed. That's grace. It's not what he deserved. What he deserved was a prison sentence, but what he got was grace, the grace of God at work in his life, and that's what God does. He's a chain breaker. We sang earlier this morning, didn't we? If you're trying to feel, uh, feel the same holes inside, there's a better life, we said. There's a better life. If you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you've got chains, he's a chain breaker. David brought God's redemption to Mephibosheth. And Jesus can bring God's redemption to your life as you open up yourself to him. The third thing that, that we see in the story is that this grace reciprocates. David says twice that what he's doing, he's doing it for the sake of, of Jonathan. He wants to show kindness to, to Saul's descendants because of, of Jonathan. He received so much kindness from him that he wants to, to give it back. When you experience grace from the abundance that you have received, you'll want to give back. If God has been generous with you, if you've experienced God's generosity, then you're going to want to be generous back with him. Amen? It makes a huge difference in how you live the Christian life. 
Do you live by duty or do you live by grace? Do you live by, by fear or do you live by gratitude? You see, some people try to live the Christian life by duty. They're, they're trying to do the right thing so that God will be pleased, so that God will approve of them. And so they work hard at doing the right thing. And the problem with that is that, that it's hard to do the right thing in all things. And so when you do it, you, you're just kind of doing the minimum so you can check that box and, and move on to the next box. And you're just trying to fill all these little boxes in your life so, so that somehow you can be right and God can be pleased and he won't be angry at you. And, and the other thing about doing Christian life that way is that when you fail, you feel terrible. You feel like a failure. You feel ashamed. You feel alienated because you've done something to upset God. You didn't measure up. And living by, by duty causes that. But living by grace is, is different. Living by grace recognizes that God already loves you unconditionally. Living by grace recognizes that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a failure. He doesn't see someone that needs to prove himself or herself. When God looks at you, if you've trusted in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus in your life. And Jesus is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. So if you've taken on Jesus in your life, when God looks at you, he is well pleased. He loves you. And so you serve him not so that he can approve of you. He's already approved Jesus. You serve him not so that he uh, can be happy with you. You serve him out of gratitude because he already loves you. That's grace. It, it, is, it goes beyond the minimum. It goes above and beyond. You see, if you realize that Jesus poured his entire life for you on the cross of Calvary, grace means that you're willing to pour your life out for him, your entire life. When you live your life that way, you experience God not as judge, but as father, as a loving father. You may... You may know a loving father on earth or you may not know a loving father on earth, but, but you can know the perfect father's love in his grace. I was talking to someone over lunch this week. We were talking about song lyrics and song titles and, and, and he was telling me, you know, I, I really don't know if I like that song, Reckless Love, because I don't really know that God is reckless. How can you speak of God as reckless? The, the, the lyrics of the song go like this, and oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99, and I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, yeah. There's no shadow he won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There is no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. Well, if we're gonna be technical, obviously God is not reckless. But, but sometimes, because we don't understand the nature of grace, it seems reckless to us. Because it's crazy. Not that God is crazy. It's crazy to us how God can love us and pursue us. And, and, and the only thing that can result from experiencing that is to want to love him back, to want to give back to him. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, freely you have received, 
freely give, Matthew 10, 8. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, you have been treated generously, so live generously. Wow, what a challenge. What an invitation. What a motto. Live generously. Has God been generous with you? Then live generously. And it leads us to our fourth and final point. The grace relinquishes. Not only does the person who experiences uh, grace desire to give back, but he or she desires to give forward. David wanted to give back to Saul's descendants some of the kindness he'd experienced. But notice the other thing that David mentions in regard to showing kindness to Saul's descendants. Go back with me to 2 Samuel 9.3 for a moment. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Yes. Jonathan had been kind toward David, but David knew one whose kindness was even greater. At the end of the day, the kindness that David experienced was God's kindness. It was God's grace. And David won Saul's descendants to experience that abundant, overwhelming, crazy, reckless, generous, excellent grace of God. And he wants to be the channel for such an experience. So, so he gives Mephibosheth all of the land that belonged to Saul. Now, David didn't have to do that. David was king now. And that land now became the property of the new king. But David, out of generosity, chooses not to keep that land, but to give it to Saul's grandson, to Jonathan's son, to Mephibosheth. And he gives them this, all the lands that Saul ever owned as a king. Now, what good is farmland if you can't farm it, if you're lame in both feet? So what David does is he calls Saul's former servant, Ziba, and he tells Ziba, listen, you and your family are going to farm the land of your former master so that Mephibosheth always has provision. So here, Mephibosheth is, is sitting at home being restored to favor with the king, having all these lands that belonged to his grandfather, having a family of servants that is serving him. And on top of that, David says to him, by the way, you have a reservation at my dinner table every single day. Every single day. I, I don't know, I mean, what would it be like to be invited to eat at the king's table one time? I mean, that would have been really cool to be at a, at a, at a royal banquet, you know? Uh, and enjoy uh, this feast. But, but it's not one royal banquet that he's invited to. He, he's invited to the table every day. The Bible says that he, Mephibosheth took him up on that offer. He showed up every day. And he sat at the table like one of the king's sons. That's grace. That's grace extended. That's, that's paying forward God's grace. And Mephibosheth would know God's grace because of David's generosity. 
It, it is a frame of David's life that shows his compassionate heart and his maturity. David experienced God's grace and now it was time to extend it. It's been a sad weekend for many. Yesterday there was a mass shooting at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. And then later in the evening there was another mass shooting at a bar in Dayton, Ohio. Over the last week there's been four mass shootings just in one week and over 30 people have lost their lives. It's senseless, it's, it's just beyond comprehension. Someone has counted the mass shootings in our country and they said that we've had 250 of them. One is too many. And I know it's complex, I don't have any easy answers for this. I know there's a lot of issues and controversies around it. But, but, but I think what we can all agree on is that this is a broken world. And I think we can all agree that there's too much violence and that it's senseless. And I hope that we can agree that what we need is not more hate, that what we need is not more retaliation, that we don't need divisive rhetoric, that, that, that we don't need to spew out hate and judgment, that what we need is grace, that, that we need to be people of grace, that, that people in the world need to know that there is a God who wants to change their lives, that there's a God who wants to redeem them, that there's a God who desires to be reconciled to them, that there is a God who wants to give people a new start, who can forgive them and make them new people. And the world will never know the grace of God unless the people of God are people of grace. And so the invitation to us today is one, to experience grace, that you open your heart to all of God's generosity, all of that it means, and two, that you be a person of grace, that out of the overflow of God's grace in your life, you will extend that grace back to him in worship and to others around you. It can change lives. Grace can change families. Grace can change communities. Grace can change the past and it can change the future, it can change history, it can change your destiny. Would you stand with me? As you bow your head in prayer and consider how God has spoken to you this morning, I wonder how it is that you need to respond to his grace. Maybe you've never experienced it You've lived your life trying to be morally good. Maybe you've even been religious, but you don't know grace. You don't know the overwhelming generosity of God. And today you wanna to open your heart and say, God, if that's what you did at the cross, in pouring your life out for me, and you rose from the dead so that I could start again. Then I receive it, I receive that grace. The forgiveness, the power to be a new person. Be my savior and Lord so that I can follow you the rest of my life. So that I can sit at your banquet table every day. 
Maybe that's your prayer today. Maybe your prayer needs to be different. Maybe you've already experienced God's grace, but maybe there's something in your heart that's not right. Maybe there's some bitterness or maybe even hate or anger. And today you, you're reminded that God was, was merciful with you and that you need to be generously merciful with others. You need to let go. Maybe what God is convicting you of today is to share the message of the gospel with your neighbor, with your workmate, with your family members so that they will know the Jesus that you know. That's the commitment you can make today. This week, share that message. Bring people to Jesus. Baptize them and rejoice in their entry to the kingdom. I want to invite you as you're praying to, to prepare your heart for communion. In a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper and maybe there's a sin in your heart you need to confess or, or something you need to make right. Just take a moment to be in communion with God before we take the elements. Father, we thank you for your grace. We see it in David's life, but we see it even in a bigger way in the life of Jesus. And we thank you for that. We receive your grace. And as we come to the Lord's table, we, we are thankful for that grace and we commit to being people of grace. Help it not to be just a concept in our mind or in our creed or in our statement of faith, but help it to be an experience of every day in every relationship. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your seat. I also want to invite you to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is for those who have made a commitment to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's for believers only. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to him, then I invite you to take a piece of bread and a cup and hold on to it as we will take it together in a few moments.